0: That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you.
1: My name is Sarah Kim, and I'm from Austin, Texas. I'm a Cheeselandian because while life is great, cheese makes it better. Go to cheeselandia.com to learn more. And if it's for you, sign up. This week on Meat and 3, we head into the second part of our mini-series on global trade, where we talk about all things sweet, from chocolate and sugarcane to the cultural festival that accompanied the growth of the date industry in the U.S. They're using this romance and fantasy to say dates are exotic and you should consume them.
2: I like to think of the food that we eat as archaeological artifacts, in part
0: because the history of humanity is in the stands in your produce market.
3: It's not like other foods. We have very like, personal
1: feelings about chocolate. Tune in to Meat in 3, HRN's weekly food news roundup, wherever you get your podcasts.
3: Welcome to All in the Industry on Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Sherry Bayer, and it is Wednesday, February 3rd, 2021, and this is the 278th episode of this series, which is dedicated to behind-the-scenes talent in the hospitality industry. Today, my guest is a master franchisee and franchisor, and I will introduce him fully in a moment. First, as I do in every show, I will start out with my PR tip, and then later, we will have my speed round game industry news discussion, solo dining experience, and the final question. As the founder of Bayer Public Relations, I'm going to tip the show off with my PR tip of the week. So today's tip is to create and follow a good business plan. Rather than winging it or just going with the flow, when when creating a business, it's important to have a sound and solid strategic plan. It will not only guide your decisions as you start and grow, but it will help you secure support, including potential financial assistance. So do your research, put pen to paper, and then take action. A smart business plan is simply an invaluable tool. That's my tip today. Now, I'm thrilled to have my guest joining me. It is Dan Rowe. He is the founder and CEO of Fransmart one of the largest restaurant franchise development firms in the world. And he's the co-founder and managing partner at Kitchen Fund and Fran Invest. Dan specializes in finding the next big thing. And for over 20 years, has identified and grown brands like Five Guys, Burgers and Fries, Qdoba, Mexican Grill, and the Halal Guys. From small unit businesses to the powerhouse chains they are today, under Dan's direction, Fran Smart has opened more than 5,000 restaurants worldwide and facilitated franchise investments that have cumulatively generated over one billion in revenues to date. With Fran Invest, he has invested in companies including Sweetgreen, Kava, by Chloe, and Inday which other, are otherwise known as awesome brands. So without further ado, hi, Dan, welcome to the show.
2: Hello, thanks for having me.
3: Thanks for joining me. I'm I'm really excited to chat with you because, you know, I've been doing a lot of shows over the past several years, and uh, I haven't done a show on franchises, and and it's about time. <laughs>
2: <laughs> we're glad we're doing it.
3: Yeah, and if there's anyone to talk to, it's you. It's you, for sure. So. So I always like to start out with my guests a bit about their background and how they got into what they're doing today. So you want to take us back a little bit of like what drew you into this line of work?
2: Sure, sure. I mean, I I started when I was a teenager. I worked in restaurants. I was a cook. I was a dishwasher at Carvel Ice Cream.
3: Oh, Carvel. Um, so
2: yeah, I grew up in Miami,
3: up. so of course, Carvel.
2: <laughs> and, and I was a dishwasher, so I wasn't even on the fun side of that business, but um, but I, but I like the business and I've always been attracted to restaurants. I like the idea of feeding people. And, um, you know, so for me, it was natural. I spent a little bit of time in computer software, mainframe software, four or five years and literally hated it. Just uh, hated everything about it. Didn't like data centers. I didn't like the technology. And I really liked the idea of being in the restaurant business. So I've always been drawn here.
3: So then how did you get involved with franchises or what were you doing before i i see you launched fransmart i think in 2000 so so what were you doing before that
2: yeah so right out of high school i started to work for these software companies i was lucky i went to work for these software companies for a guy that started companies he'd start them out of thin air and grow them into big big companies and sell them and i was just kind of a hired gun if you will and I worked with him for a few years, and, I, and it was fun, and I made good money, and, and, and it was rewarding in that way, but I just didn't like it. And so I took some of my money when I was 23 or 24, maybe. I bought the franchise rights for a bagel shop. Uh, I, I'm from Los Angeles, Southern California. I've, I used to sell software to the government, so I was coming to D.C. all the time. found this little bagel shop in D.C. and said, I want to open one of these things. In California. And so I teamed up with a buddy of mine, he and his wife, and we were gonna open up a bagel shop in California. They decided to move to Denver instead, so we did Denver. And I made a deal with this company, this bagel chain, that had six stores at the time. It was called Chesapeake Bagel. And I said, if I help prove you outside of the DC Metro, I wanna be also, I also want to do your franchising. I wanna be your franchise guys. And so we opened up a store two thousand miles away from everyone else, and we were left on our own to do real estate and supply line, very, it was, a, it was a, not a good concept. And we, we just didn't know any better, but we were successful. We actually did really well with it. We picked a great site, we ran it well. My partner is an excellent operator and we were successful. And then we helped that brand grow from six stores to about 200 and then the company sold. So we, we got bought out, sold our stores And one of my restaurants in Denver was right across the street from the original Chipotle. Back when Chipotle only had one, we had a bagel shop right across the street from it. And so that was the second concept that I saw at a very young stage that grew into something huge. And we tried to work with uh, Chipotle and they weren't interested, they didn't want a franchise. And so we approached Qdoba and Qdoba was interested. They basically saw the same thing with Chipotle going crazy and they, they, they agreed to franchise with us. We were their outsourced franchising partner. We taught them everything about growing from one to, you know, we grew it from one to maybe about a hundred open, another few hundred in development. And then we sold that company to Jack in the Box. And then, um, and then after that it was 2000. So in 2000, I actually formed Smart, but I had been doing it before that i just was growing one company at a time and then in 2000 2000 was a very dot com time and um, and w- we were investors in a bunch of dumb dot com projects but all the marketing that there w- that you'd see about technology was how people were using the internet to revolutionize various businesses my prism being restaurants and franchising and so i got this you know idea of of turning Fransmart into more of kind of a tech driven approach to doing Um, Franchise development, and so yeah. So 2000 we started, and you know it's been uh, we've we've had a bunch of swing and misses, but we've also had a couple of hits. So I I feel like I've I've uh, done some things right, done done a lot of things wrong, and know the difference. And every year we get a little bit better, you know. And so, but we just we just stay at it. It's the only thing that we know how to do. We just keep doing it.
3: Yeah, you've had many hits. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So so but but take me. For someone who doesn't know, it was never, you just, you, you, you say very casually, we took it from one to 200 or, you know, like we grew it. Like how exactly do you do that? How do you, and what's, what's the pace typically? I would assume it's kind of, it's different for all concepts, but with the ones you've worked with, like, how do you go from one to two and then, and then next thing, you know, you have a couple hundred.
2: Well, and so so the answer really is compounded growth. So let's say that we sell our most of our franchisees buy ten locations because nobody really wants to buy a job when they buy a franchise. Um, they're trying to build, you know, invest in a company, and the the whole beauty of franchising is when you get your company to the point where it self funds. So, you know, if you if we sell a ten unit, I don't know, a whole all guys franchise, let's just say. And that franchise, you know, the franchisee puts up the money for the first store and it makes a profit, puts up a little less for a second and because he's reinvesting profit from the first, maybe a little less on the third. But at some point, those three will self-fund. They'll, they'll actually they'll create enough of their own cash that, that then they can keep growing. And so that's really how you get this um, exponential growth is like we're only selling, you know, like most of our brands, we sell one deal a quarter for the first year maybe one deal every other month the second year. And then maybe in the third year, we start selling one franchise a month, but they're all big deals. They're five or 10 or 20 unit deals. And so the good news for the brand is that one a quarter, then one every other month, and then one a month is just a very easy thing to transition into. So it's not a lot of work. It's not a lot of, you know, brain damage for any one of the particular concepts. And then also for the franchisees, franchisees opening unit two and three and four and five, they become progressively easier to support. The more stores that somebody opens, the, you know, they're growing with internal people and their supply lines are already in place and marketing's already done. Everybody knows about the brand. So the brands really become, it becomes easier. So it sounds like, you know, uh, You grow a company to hundreds of units. It's not like you do it in the first month. You you take your time. But but it it does grow fast, especially if it works and people want to keep opening up more stores. This whole theory of compounded returns it works in franchising and that that really is what keeps me here. It's like this we have a mantra in our business like we want to get wealthy helping people get wealthy we want to get rich helping people get rich however you describe it it's the only way franchising works and so if you go sell franchises and then franchisees struggle or they they fail they're not going to keep opening stores they're not going to pay royalties they're not going to help you get more you know they're not going to be good references for more uh, franchises so for us the very thing that we focus on is, is you know, happy, referenceable franchisees that want to keep growing, and that's how these brands wind up growing big over time.
3: Yeah, how did you meet or discover Five Guys? When when was that?
2: Um, so it's it's from my t- it's from this town I lived in. So little known secret, and and maybe a maybe a burst of good news for somebody thinking about starting a concept. The original Five Guys closed. So the original five guys, number one, they opened it up and it didn't work out and it closed. So then they opened another one and another one and another one. They got It took them 10 years to get four stores. And then we approached them and we just said, this is like a good concept. You guys keep winning all these awards and everyone thinks it's great. And, you know, you guys clearly aren't going to be the biggest burger chain. But we thought we, we thought we could do something because I had just grown um, Qdoba, which was sort of a fast. Uh, it was a fresher approach to Taco Bell, let's just say. And so we said, you know, we can do the same thing in Mexico and in, uh, in burgers. We can go after Wendy's, McDonald's, Burger King, but with a fresh burger. And 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 so we talked him into it. We just said, look, we should, you know, this thing could literally be a, a chain, and it could be thousands of units. And so it's no surprise, like how Five Guys is now two thousand stores around the world. Like to me, there's not one bit about that that's a shock. Like it's it made at the time. There's already people eating cajillions worth of burgers. That were really not great burgers, and then all of a sudden somebody comes up with a little bit better model. We already knew because of the four stores that were open that were doing well. Like you look at their numbers, and they it validated the model validated, and then they learned. Like the first store closed, and they learned from what didn't work before, and they fixed it, and it worked four more times. And and yeah, I mean that's that's a that's a little monster. But
3: yeah, I'm not I'm not sure. Well, you probably know how many there are in New York City, but I remember. I actually worked with a an Indian restaurant down on Bleecker Street that was excellent but they were struggling with the the rent it was very high and they ended up closing and a five guys went into the space and it's been there since so <laughs> Yeah.
2: Yeah.
3: Yeah. Um <laughs> they've been very successful or you've been very successful.
2: Yeah, so, and that that's one of the things like when we got to five guys their volumes weren't nearly what they became like they had the four stores that they had they did well but it was it was a year or two later that those that 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 their average unit volumes were really terrific but yeah five guys economic model is just a it's a winner
3: yeah let me ask you my question for my last guest. On episode 277, I had on Will Godera. He's a New York City-based restaurateur, formerly of Make It Nice Hospitality Group, which included Eleven Madison Park, The Nomad, and Made Nice. He's the co-founder of the Welcome Conference and the Independent Restaurant Coalition and the host of Weekly Specials Podcast. So Will asked, he says that on your about us section on your website, it says you specialize in finding the next big thing. And clearly you're really, really good at that. So what are the things you look at uh, or you look for before choosing to devote resources to helping turn something like the Halal Guys, which is one of his favorite or was one of his favorite little street side stands into something that is now all over the country.
2: Well, we it's we don't always get it right. We guess wrong a lot of times, but we're really looking at potential. And so with halal guys it was easy. There's a billion and a half Muslims in the world and people like uh hummus and they like, you know, that <laughs> the Middle Eastern food. And and you just think about it. It's like there's a billion and a half Muslims and there's no restaurant chain. There's no restaurant concept at all. And and we were opening American restaurants in the Middle East and, you know, a bunch of our franchises over there. And every time you go over there, you you eat the local street food and it's the street food was better than the brands that we were franchising. And and I, would, I was asking for the longest time, like, I want to find a concept from Dubai. I'll go put my money and open one in New York and then grow it. And I couldn't find one that worked. And and it was funny because I would walk by Halal Guys for years, and I never stopped because the line was always really long. And and I didn't it did to me. It didn't. I was sort of looking for a concept that was already brick and mortar. And I finally looked at that, and I just said, you know what? It's in New York. New York is one of the most iconic cities in the world. It's got this concept that when you you know the lines are crazy, as you know. But and then mm-hmm. if you look at the people in the line, it's not only Muslim. It's it's everybody. Like it's basically a Starbucks uh, makeup of customers in line. And I said, this concept, because that that was the trick. It's like back in when we first launched hello Guys, that was at a time when on CNN, a lot of stuff you saw was like beheadings. Remember that? It wasn't long ago that you had, I mean, some Al-Qaeda and some nasty stuff. And so here we're growing the brand. But we knew, like, the concept was a New York concept. These are guys that came American Dream, came here drove taxis, started. It's a really, really, really good story. But it was definitely an American dream, American-made uh, Middle East concept. And so we grew it that way. We said it's American halal concept. and um, But it's, it's another thing. Like we have this playbook at France Mart where if we have a concept, we want to go after all the biggest 40 or 50 media markets. We wanna put a store in, in all the busiest mass gathering areas. So whether it's an airport or a train station or just a busy urban or a busy suburban, like we know where all these bullseyes are around the country. That's why like it gets easier for us every time because we just know where to go. And and um, with Halal Guys, I, I said I, I said, I think you guys could be the Chipotle of Middle Eastern food. And you guys already kind of do this scoop and go thing like Chipotle does. And so people get that. And you've got these funny, you know, I mean, you got these yellow and, and red colors and it's and people like it. And and so, you know, so we basically um, that was a story is, is that we we said we're going to make it the, the Middle Eastern Chipotle. And I went back to a couple of my existing franchisees, like the first few people who signed up were already people that were in our ecosystem. And and we just put a lot of energy into making sure that the systems were right, that the unit economics were right. I mean, we had to take it from a cart into the prototype itself. So there was a lot there to make it into the Chipotle of Middle East. And then once you do that, our big fear, we had a lot of people telling us, they said, Dan, I don't think that concept works outside of New York, or people would say, you know, there's if there was if Middle Eastern was gonna be a thing, someone would have already done it, or other people would say, People only like it because it's on carts like that's part of the experience people want to line up at the cart And it's just like so when we started to grow we were really nervous we're like gosh, what if we open up in a market and it doesn't go well then people are going to say the concept doesn't travel outside of uh, uh, Outside of New York. So we were careful. We went to Chicago picked a home run space that Store opened up line around the block and it was covered in news and social media the store in California was one of my former employees um and we just just made sure that that he had the the right team in the right location the right everything and he opened up and he did i mean he did weird sales he his sales were ridiculously high his first uh, when he first opened, and that store even today is still just a straight you know busier than a uh, i don 't know it 's a really really busy store for a little tiny shop and it's but you know because we proved that a concept worked outside of the core market now it keeps growing, and so that concept now is it 's actually the largest uh, and fastest growing Middle East concept in the world in Canada, america, Asia starting now into europe but uh, but it 's growing but what the thing we look for is we look for potential, so we wanted to know like can the concept grow into something big? is there room for it? Part of our prism is also we're looking at real estate. And so like all the best real estate around the country already has a Starbucks in it, already has a Five Guys and a Chipotle in it. And, and so you're not going to get into those categories. So we looked at this too from a real estate perspective and said, this is wide open. There's nobody doing this with the brand. Went to a couple of franchisees and, you know, and on and on and on. And so but, yeah, I mean, it's potential unit economics for a big deal, too. I mean, restaurants, you know, the, the, a lot of times these concepts are started by chefs, you know, celebrity chefs or chefs or, or people who do it for different reasons. And um, it's their baby. But if you sell a franchise to somebody and all of a sudden they're struggling financially, it's not their baby. And so, you know, they're either not going to nurture it the right way or they're going to change it or they're going to otherwise sabotage it. So we had to make sure that there was a lot a lot of runway. Landlords were going to like it. We knew franchisees would like it. The unit economics were really good. And then we tapped into the right marketing. This is at a time when social media was, you know, Instagram was just starting to, be something that a lot of people paid attention to and we you know so a lot of a lot of things happen at the right time but it happens like i'm grown you know dumpling concept right now from brooklyn brooklyn dumpling shop and it's like that's another one's a billion and a half you know asians people love dumplings nobody's done anything new in that space this guy has created not only all your traditional dumplings that you normally would think of but also like bacon cheeseburger dumplings that oprah eats and You know it does all these like funky dumplings and so I look at that it's the same thing it's like it's a wide-open landscape nobody's doing it his unit economics are crazy because he's created this concept that's gonna be touchless right that's like it's touchless there's no hoods there's no grills you know, it's a very tech forward concept. So from a food perspective, from a landlord perspective, we already have franchisees lined up. We don't even, I mean, don't, the first store opens in like a month and we've already got, uh, franchisees that already want to sign up without even seeing the store open and people that are from our, from our, uh, from our network. But yeah.
3: It's amazing. I, I can't wait to try it. I, I actually, I work with a restaurant right right across the street called La Palapa and I so I, I know I know where it is or where it was going in um, and and yeah everything I've seen on it it sounds it sounds wonderful and and hello guys I mean it's someone who's living in New York a long time it's it's I, I certainly love it too like everyone else but a lot of times don't have it because there's always a huge line even late night. I did. I did. You know, get it was unfor- unfortunate um, reason why, but during during the pandemic, less people were out. So I I did. Um, uh, one time I walked by there, and there was there wasn't a line, and I was like, "What's going on?" So I I got my halal <laughs> halal guys and took it to go because um, it's delicious. And I, it's uh, I mean, it's kudos to you for recognizing what they were doing and being able to grow grow their concept. Um, it's pretty, pretty impressive.
2: Thanks. Thanks.
3: Yeah. So, so speaking of the pandemic, uh, what, how has that changed what you're doing or what, what, you know, the franchise or franchisee sort of concept has it changed? Um, what's, yeah, what's, what's happening?
2: Yeah. I mean, some yes, some no. So in a way that, the you know, I mean obviously the news spooks people like never before, the you know, COVID. People are just freaked out right now. And so it doesn't take much to get people sidetracked. But um we're selling more franchises than ever. And we're selling more franchises than ever to people that are already franchisees of other concepts who remember what it was like two thousand fifteen through two thousand nineteen. I mean it was an expensive, crowded Market, right? I don't know any restaurant tour who didn't complain about trying to find the right people, find the right locations, or just feel like there's just too many restaurants. And so, as sad as COVID is, and it is sad, um, if you're standing here today, February third, looking forward, you're looking at an enormous opportunity. Like if you're not fatigued and tired and beat up from what's been going on. You're looking today at like, gosh, there's a great opportunity. There's 30 or 40 percent of the restaurants are closing and they're not going to reopen. And so it's a supply and demand shift uh, for amazing locations, low cost conversions landlords that are literally on their ass making deals that that i've never seen i haven't seen these deals in a long time but a supply and demand for customers right i mean that's why you see any of these publicly traded qsr and fast casual concepts they all have sales increases panera chipotle everybody's sales are up and so you know if you do it right this market is there are people that are cleaning up in this market and and then for people i mean it's like it's you know with as high as the unemployment is it's it's just never been as good to get and keep really good people so i think it's an opportunity but you know there's definitely some i mean look at the like your government especially or your your mayor keeping the restaurants closed and you know that that kind of stuff that that hurts like the you know limiting restaurant sales and you know, just all these sort of reactionary rules that keep coming up as a result of what we're going through with COVID are obviously just catastrophic. So there's, you know, and then the the, the sad part of a lot of people are dying and getting, getting sick and it's just, you know, and it's just weird. People are just not feeling, you know, they're just feeling spooked about this. But again, if you just look at it going forward, at some point it's going to be 2022 then 2023 and you're going to look back and you're going to you're going to see that this was a buy low sell high market like you know if you look at the stock market there's dips and peaks and dips and peaks this is this is going to go down as a big dip and you're going to wish that you had invested because somebody else is and then at some point when you realize it's time to get in it's going to be back when prices are more, it's going to be more expensive and more crowded and hard to find people. So I I kind of look at right now as like, it's a great opportunity, but it's, it's kind of hard to have that conversation with someone who's just had the headwinds that they've had the last year.
3: Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's the same, I think with like real estate opportunities. And some people are, I think some people are seeking this, these, this time and and this opportunity, but some people just, you're just not there. I mean, it's hard. It's, it's a very, very difficult time that we're we're going through in the restaurant industry, especially. So, um, but yeah, the future, the future uh, it's, it's good if you can plan for the future. So let's talk uh, before we take a break, let's talk a little bit about the kitchen fund and Fran Invest. Uh, what what are the concepts there and 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 how um, how do you decide what companies to invest in is I assume it's kind of the same as how you decide what how to who you're going to franchise with.
2: Yeah, except for we're not only limited. France Mart is only working with people that want to franchise kitchen fund can work with someone who doesn't want to franchise, like Sweetgreen or Kava, or it can work with a company that wants to franchise but not might not necessarily want to work with France Smart. Maybe they want to do it themselves. So um, it really just opens us, us up to being a place that we want to find the next big chain at the earliest possible moment. So something that we think could go from a couple to a couple hundred or maybe a thousand and have a really big liquidity event, we want to get involved and so we're different than a lot of private equity or venture capital. Most private equity venture capital, those are finance guys and they don't really understand the restaurant business and feeding people. They don't really understand entrepreneurs and really the quirks that go that quirks that go along with, you know, chefs and entrepreneurs and stuff. So that they look at us like we're smart money. So we have the same money to invest as everyone else except for we can just be more helpful. So we're more helpful. We're more supportive of the franchisor. We help them figure out complex issues, and you know, we've just sort of been through it. So there's a couple cases like some of the biggest private equity companies, you know, in America have brought us into investments that they've invested in because they wanted, you know, kind of the, 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 you know, our 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 perspective at the table. But yeah, that's what it is. We're 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 looking for, you know, it's like sweet green. Like I saw sweet green when there was one, and. You know some and then saw them again when they were three and it's just like you could just tell you just knew from the get-go that that thing was going to be a monster and in that case we want to you know like now that we have organized capital like we if a company needs to raise money raising money is a pain in the butt it's distracting it's time consuming and it's like here we have optics into our brands a year before they ever need the money so if they're if they're if they're thinking that they're going to need money this time next year we can have a conversation today and when it's time to write the check we just wire it you know so it's just an easy smart investor approach to this space
3: yeah yeah i mean i <laughs> sweet green i i didn't i didn't take any action with it but i saw it i mean you could see see that that grant brand was just going to blossom and i'm friends with uh Rita Jamey, whose son is Nick Jemai, who's one of the founders, and uh, I remember going to their opening when they came to New York, and um, yeah, it's it's pretty incredible to see how they've, they've grown the company, and uh, uh, they yeah. I feel like they deserve all the success because they're they're smart, good people.
2: That's for sure.
3: Yeah. So, uh, one more question: uh, What? how competitive is the franchising industry and if someone listening wants to get into doing what you do like how would you say to go go about that
2: um it's really competitive so it's competitive not only from people who are franchising people like we are but um it's it's competitive with people who are you know, social media uh, influencers, people who understand database marketing, um, operations, like chain operations guys who realize that the franchising people make more money than the operations people and who try to get into that space. So it's, it's crowded, but my, my, my advice, and really it's advice that I give myself, is, is I waste, as successful as we are, I waste two-thirds of my time. And so I'm constantly wasting my time chasing deals I shouldn't be chasing or spending time on brands. I shouldn't be spending and, 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 and in hindsight, if I had back all those hours to invest more into my winners, I would be you know, many, many, many times more successful. And so my advice to anyone listening is to go pick an amazing concept and just focus on it. Because if you take one, look at Sweetgreen, we just talked about it. Their last round of capital was a billion and a half dollars or more. And so billion, billion, you know, hundred and something stores. And so yeah. it's like, I mean, how, you know, how many concepts do you need or five guys? Like how many, how many brands like that do you need? It's better to do, do a better job on fewer things, go deep versus going wide. And that's, it's actually honestly advice that I struggle with myself because I'm a deal junkie and, you know, and it's not, I'm not saying it to brag. I'm saying it, it's a shortcoming of mine.
3: No, it's great advice. And no, just knowing all the different concepts you do represent and so many home runs, it's like, yeah, you definitely, you definitely don't, it doesn't seem like you stop or you're, you're just, you're just, you're done. (laughs) Well,
2: we're we're always looking at a concept, not for what it is, but what we think it can be. And so like in Halal Guys, I met them with carts. And so here, you know, our conversation is, Hey, we could be the Chipotle of this. And you know, you really, there's something fun and creative about that process. And it's very rewarding. It's like a very artistic thing to be able to do something that didn't exist before. Like we created a concept out of, that didn't exist. They had, I mean, they had the, the, the carts, but I mean, we created this retail and now they're starting to do CPG and grocery stores and all this stuff. And so it's like, this is going to be the biggest Muslim restaurant concept in the world and we started it from a cart and so they work you know they work when they hit but there's there's a there's other concepts that I just know I don't want to name names but there's concepts that I've worked with that it's like why did you work with that or or why did you stay with it as long as you did I should have I should I should be better at saying no right so I should be better at saying yeah better at saying no so
3: okay well you've said I don't know that's it. It's a good, it's it's good advice and you've done well. So, but I hear you on that. Uh, so let's take a little break here and we'll come back. We'll play my speed round game. We'll talk industry news. I'll have my solo dining experience and the final question. So stay with us. This is all in the industry on Heritage Radio Network. <music>
1: My name is Sarah Kim and I'm from Austin, Texas. I'm a Cheeselandian because while life is great, cheese makes it better. Wisconsin cheese has proven time and time again to be a delicious expression of craft, hard work, and tradition. As a Cheeselandian, I am able to share a Gouda experience with fellow cheese and food lovers nationwide, as well as connect with cheese producers and cheesemongers, taking my love of cheese to another level. I invite you to join Cheeselandia because during these difficult times, it has been even more important to take it easy and get cheesy. The Cheeselandia community and events have been the glue helping to keep us together and connected, and I would love it if you would join me. And let's face it, if you hear the word cheese and get a little hungry, then you've found a place you can call home. To find out more about Cheeselandia, go to Cheeselandia.com.
3: Welcome back to All in the Industry on Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Sherry Bayer. My guest today is Dan Rowe. He's the founder and CEO of, of Fran Smart and the co founder and managing partner at Kitchen Fund and Fran Invest. So, Dan, it's time for my speed round game. What this is, is I'm going to name a couple things and you get to pick your preference, such as chocolate or vanilla.
2: You ready? ready? Done. Let's do it. All
3: right, here we go. Eat in or eat out? Out. Wine, beer, cocktail, soft cocktail, or champagne? Beer. Tasting menu or a la carte? Tasting menu. Small plates or large plates?
2: Small plates.
3: Communal table or chef's counter?
2: Ooh, uh, chef's counter.
3: Tipping or all-inclusive charge? Tipping,
2: -tipping. over-tipping.
3: Over-tipping, like that. Fast, casual, or fine dining?
2: Fast, casual.
3: I thought you might say that. Pita sandwich or platter? Platter. Two more, cheese plate or dessert? Uh, Dessert. Manhattan or Brooklyn? Manhattan. Awesome. You're you were very speedy at my game.
2: <laughs> <laughs> you know, but you didn't say you said cheese plate or dessert. What was the dessert option? I don't like cheese, but I was, uh, was whatever
3: funny. dessert you would you would want. And what would that be? And do you have a dessert franchise concept? I don't I don't <laughs> think you do.
2: I don't I don't have a dessert franchise. I need one. I'm looking I'm actually looking at a concept in New York that's a dessert concept and that's another one it's like I just know if I get this thing it'll be it'll I'm looking at one already I'll tell you offline but if I get it I already know I can put it in airports and train stations and I'm going to make it a monster so you guys have a lot of good concepts in New York
3: yes we do and now I can't wait to hear what that is (laughs) (laughs) Uh, very cool Okay, so for industry news, I picked out an article that was on Eater San Francisco and it's entitled, Instagram Really Isn't Optional for Restaurants Anymore. It was by Becky Duffett. And this week also, there was an article in the New York Times entitled, Cooks Turned Instagram into the World's Greatest Takeout Menu, and that was by Tijal Rayo. And... um, you know, it's interesting. Both these articles hit the one. The one in Eaters uh, is focused more on, on the restaurant world, which you and I are more in. So I thought we would talk about that. And you know, it's it's basically saying the pandemic uh, made it official that Instagram is a necessary tool for restaurants that want to reach customers uh, where they live. And I, I mean, I, I said this uh, back when I was doing. I remember I was doing some Instagram lives. Back, I guess it was like July and August, and I I kept saying I think the reason we learned how to use social media and Instagram was for for this time period we're in now and to be able to communicate and and I I completely agree it's essential for businesses and restaurants to be on it and uh, get information out there about when they're open or what you know what's happening um, on their menu. So um, what's what's your take on on Instagram, and are you are you advising your your clients to be on it?
2: <laughs> well, it's an interesting. Um, I glanced at the article right before we started talking, and I think it's an interesting point because it's it's like a lot of things. Everything goes in cycles. Remember, there used to be AOL, <clears throat> and you know things go in cycles. But Instagram, there was a time that Instagram was the place. It was like influencers, Instagram, like that, that had a very direct impact on our revenue. Like we knew that we could go pull certain levers in Instagram and it would affect sales. Those days were gone before COVID. That was already starting to fade. And, um, but, and then COVID certainly, uh, sped that up because a lot of people would become instant foodies. They'd look at something, they traveled to New York, they got their list of Places that they saw from all the inf- influencers that they're going to go see. Well, they're not doing that right now, but um, but it's still good because I mean Instagram's good in a way that it'll it'll make a, it'll make a single unit concept from you know uh, somewhere middle of Nebraska famous all over the world. Like if the right picture presented the right way, that that keeps catching on virally, it could make somebody famous overnight. And so it, it still has value. It's still good. Um, you know, and the 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 thing is, you're getting this compounded chatter. You're getting people that take your stuff and retweet it, and you know, then you get onto new sites. And so, I I, I think it's good. It's just not as valuable as it once was. It it it, it once was our main focus. Like it, at at Halal Guys, there was a big, big, big reason stores opened the way that they did. Is we could tap local influencers, local foodies, and and we just knew you could flip those switches and those restaurants were going to open up pack. Now you have to do it different. There's just different techniques that you have to do to get the same result.
3: Wow. Yeah. That's interesting. Cause, cause I didn't, I think for me or what I've observed is I I didn't think it, it Instagram had a low point or, or peaked and was going down and then went back up. I feel like it's, it's been a, a major, uh, the most popular app I would say for food and restaurants in the past year and or so before, before the pandemic. And, and this, I feel like it just shifted the focus a little more now being like I'm using Instagram to look up restaurants that I potentially want to go to, to try to figure out what they're doing. Do they have outdoor dining? Is it heated? You know, what, because it, everything's changed so much. And so it's more, I feel like it's getting more information or uh, out there versus just looking at awesome pictures of food, you know, yeah. <laughs> that make you hungry. <clears throat>
2: yeah. Um,
3: so, but yeah. yeah, I don't think it's, I don't see it going anywhere anytime soon.
2: Yeah. Yeah, no, but it's not going to go away. It's just to to me, it wasn't the it wasn't the end all um, uh, tool. There was just that window where you only had to do a little bit of stuff and it wasn't expensive and it would have an enormous result. And then quickly these and this is back when influencers used to do it because they were trying to become influencers. They didn't charge you for Mm -hmm. that. I know influencers now get paid fifty thousand dollars for this and twenty five thousand dollars for that. It's just sort of like that whole price value relationship to why you did that. The the investment versus the benefit is just not what once what it was um, before. So we 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 do other things. We have we get more there's we get more results from other things. P, namely PR. Like we you know PR is probably the best. Getting other people period talking about how good your concept is. And then letting that spread virally is the best way to go get trial.
3: Hey, man, I'll take it. That's the best compliment you could have said. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. PR doesn't. Uh, PR is essential, I think. So, um, but sometimes people don't don't um don't realize the value or want to invest in it. So, I appreciate that. So before before I do my solo dining experience, uh, I just also wanted to say uh, yesterday, Governor Cuomo announced that New York City is now allowing restaurant workers to be included in phase one B in getting the vaccine, which is which is amazing because restaurant workers like two days ago were were listed in, I think it was like phase four. So they they moved them up and I'm, I'm really happy about it because restaurant workers are essential and have been working so hard during this pandemic. So I think it's great news. And they also, we're gonna have uh, restaurant indoor dining going to 25% as of Valentine's day. So that's also gonna change things here because I've been dining outside in the cold, which I will talk about now. Um, so my solo dining experience this week is at Wayan. Here's the rundown. The location, 20 Spring Street, Nolita, New York City. The concept, French-Indonesian cuisine with modern American style. The owners, Chef Cedric von Richten and his wife, Ochi, who is from Indonesia. So why they go? Well, I love this restaurant. I want to support them. So my experience. So this past Saturday, I made a reservation for two on resi the system wasn't allowing reservations for one so i showed up by myself and was hoping they would let me dine there and they did because if you know if it was a problem with not having the right amount of covers i would have taken my food to go but it wasn't a problem. They had a, a form to fill out for contact tracing for COVID. Uh, they were busy. I, I had to wait a little bit for my table to clear, but it was a nice cozy outdoor table under a heat lamp and they had a little grill on the table also to keep your food warm, which was great. Um, and it was, yeah, it was very cold out. It was like 25. It's silly to be dining out, but that's what I was doing and lots of people were doing it too. Um so I ordered I ate I met the manager Eileen we had a really nice talk uh, I didn't linger too long cuz uh, you know my toes get get cold pretty fast um but it was it was it was wonderful and I have to say cuz I didn't say last week on my solo dining that in New York everyone's wearing masks and 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 there's hand sanitizer on the table and it's very um they're taking the right uh, really great precautions I think to make you feel safe and the servers feel safe too So what did I get? I had Hiramasa sashimi with ginger turmeric dressing and sambal matah, and that was recommended by my server. I also had crispy baby back pork ribs with soy tamarind glaze and sesame seeds and a corn fritter, and they also surprised me with a key lime pie dessert at the end. My take, I loved it. The sashimi was delicious, really fresh, awesome flavoring, and I was craving comfort food. So the ribs and the fritter, that's what they were. And they went really well together. And the dessert was just, you know, icing, icing on top. And I had some leftovers to go. I couldn't finish it all. The ambiance: So they have a three-sided covered shed with heaters. And there's partitions between all the tables. So I was in my own little nook. And uh, as I said, there was this little grill. So it was, you know, extra heated uh elements happening to to keep people warm. Um, They also have some tables outside the covered tent. I'd say it's perfect for a dinner with friends or date night. Interesting tidbit. Wayan has a special menu happening called Indo Chalet, which is a prefix menu that um, many tables were having. Uh, You have to reserve it in advance. Uh, It was too much for one person, so I passed on it this time, but next time. Personal fun fact. So I talked about a solo dining experience at this restaurant back on episode 207. If you want to hear that, that was an indoor experience. And Chef Cedric and his sister Luis were my guests on episode 121. We were talking about their food dreams foundation and John George is their father. Okay. So you didn't put that together. Uh, the cost of my meal was $54, not including tax and gratuity. Would I go back? Yes. And their website is way on dash. NYC dot com, that's W A Y A N dash N Y C dot com. So there you go. What do you what do you think, Dan? Do you think this is a franchisable concept?
2: <laughs> well, I wanna check it out. It makes me want to go back. The best the best compliment you can give it is that you'd go back, right? That that's yeah. what separates that that really is the biggest thing is do customers do they vote with their wallet. Do they want to go back? And if that's the case, that's probably the biggest indicator we look for.
3: Yeah. That's how I feel about clients too. (laughs) Honestly, (laughs) in PR, if somebody I worked with comes back, it's like the best feeling. Uh, So I'm with you.
2: That's the neat thing about the restaurant business is that this instant gratification, you feed someone, they're paying you and you're feeding them and they say thank you and they come back. There's just nothing better.
3: Yeah, yeah, I agree. Okay, so it's time for the final question. My next guest is Mark Bittman. He is a journalist, he's formerly with the New York Times, he's a cookbook author, he's the editor in chief of Heated. He's a leading voice in global food culture and policy for more than three decades, and he has a new book out. It's called Animal Vegetable Junk, A History of Food from Sustainable to Suicidal. So Dan, what would you like, like to ask Mark?
2: I want to know more about meatless, more about plant-based. What are we going to see? When when are we going to see meatless and plant-based more pervasive in the restaurant business and in really in your homes? It's still such a novelty that people talk about.
3: Great question. And you've worked with, I'm thinking you've worked with By Chloe. So yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, so you have some experience with that. Yeah. Uh, I will find out. I mean, he's, I mean, Mark Bittman. He's he's written a lot of books. I don't have the number in front of me, but he's he's quite an impressive man. So, looking forward to chatting with him.
2: Yeah, I'd love to. I want to see that go mainstream because you know it's like, you, by Chloe did it, but other than that, you go to a normal chain and they make such a big deal of the one item on their menu that's meatless. And it's just, I think at some point that you're going to see that's not the case. I think you're going to see it much more pervasive. So, I hope so.
3: I think we're starting to see it in New York a bit more, definitely more, more vegetarian and vegan type options. But um, yeah, he's the guy to ask. So I will find out. And that's the show. Thank you so much for joining me. I, I really enjoyed chatting with you, learning more about everything you do and I wish you much continued success. I, I can't wait to hear about the new concepts you're working on and what's next.
2: Awesome. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it.
3: You're welcome. Stay warm. (laughs) My guest today has been Dan Rowe. He's the founder and CEO of FranSmart and the co-founder and managing partner at Kitchen Fund and Fran Invest. His websites are fransmart.com and kitchenfund.com, and you can follow him at Dan Rowe. You can follow me at Sherry Bayer, at Bayer PR, and at All Industry. My Facebook page is All in the Industry. Websites, BayerPublicRelations.com, SherryBayer.com, and All in the industry.com. All of our shows are archived at org. We are also on iTunes, Stitcher, and Spotify. Thanks always to my engineer today, Amanda Wang, and thanks again to Dan. I'm Sherry Bayer. I'll be back next week with another show. Hope you'll tune in then, and thank you for being part of All in the Industry. Bye.